We are beginning a new series of messages as we launch into a season where we're talking about the future and the vision of the church. And I want to begin today with a familiar passage from Matthew chapter 11, but I want to talk about it in an, probably an unfamiliar way. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. We've always gravitated towards those words of Jesus. For those of us living in a modern world, we know what it means to be busy. We know what it means to be tired. And so when Jesus talks about the burdens of life, when he talks about the weariness of life, how do we not gravitate towards this beautiful invitation that he has given? And yet when Jesus was uttering these words, it was not some sort of general plea. He was saying something far more concrete. He was saying something much more specific. Let me see if I can explain. When you go back to the life of Jesus, there was a particular context in which he was speaking, and the religious environment in particular was one in which we have to understand in order to be able to grasp what Jesus is saying, that Judaism at this point in time had become a complex system of laws and practices and regulations based on the Hebrew people's Bible in the Old Testament, there were 613 different commands that you needed to adhere to. That there were 248 of these commands that were in the affirmative in order for you to do these kinds of things. 248 was the number of different parts of the body that they understood at that point in time. And that there were 365 negative commands identified in the Old Testament that you were not supposed to do these things, one for each day of the year, all totaling up to 613 different commandments. And on top of this, you also had the rabbinical teaching that would help to expand, to explain, to give you the different tax loopholes that were in these different commands. And so you... If you lived in the lifetime of Jesus and you considered yourself a devout Jew, you had thousands upon thousands of different competing thoughts that were going on in your head at once. It was a lot to try to keep track of. And it was in the midst of this that Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me that my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Jesus was not just picking up some random agricultural image out of the sky. A yoke was, yes, uh, an image where you were to be united with another beast of burden in order to like plow a field. But a yoke was also a technical term for a rabbi's teaching. In other words, each of the rabbis with all these different hundreds of laws and then thousands of interpretations of those laws, each rabbi would have to be able to distill down for you, this is my particular yoke, this is how you are to follow in my way. And so when someone comes up to Jesus and says, teacher, what is one of the greatest of commandments? This is not a question that would have thrown Jesus off. And Jesus does that incredible mashup of both Leviticus and Deuteronomy, 
blending both the nature of humanity and divinity together into one elegant solution. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. And then Jesus dropped the mic and walked away. What Jesus had done in that moment was to take hundreds and thousands of complex things a religious system that had become a heavy burden, something that was wearisome. And he had turned it once again, he had restored it into something that was life-giving, the way that it was originally supposed to be. 20 years ago when I started ministry, I started working for a guy by the name of Vic Pence in Houston, Texas. My predecessor here in the church and one of the phrases that Vic used to often say, he would quote Oliver Wendell Holmes, and this still echoes around within me, I can still hear Vic saying it, that for the simplicity on this side of complexity, I wouldn't give you a fig. But for the simplicity on the far side of complexity, I would give you anything at all. I think there's a little cartoon that describes this effectively. We're going around in this life and we don't want reductionistic solutions, we don't want simplistic solutions, but neither do we want to live in the midst of the complexity and the chaos and the heavy burdens and the weary nature of the way that most of us live our lives. What we're looking for is simplicity on the other side of that complexity. We're looking for what is known as elegant simplicity, that it has all the pithiness and yet all the timelessness of a proverb to be able to distill on the other side of complexity that this is how we're supposed to really live. I don't know about you, but that's the way I wanna live, simple but not simplistic. And yet, if we don't learn how to do that, we can get in real trouble. Let me see if I can provide you a business explanation of this. Um, one of the things that we look back on in a famous case in kind of business study and in business school is the case of Amtrak. Amtrak was uniquely poised to dominate the transportation industry, even the airline industry as it began. And yet somewhere along the way, Amtrak executives and leaders in the railroad industry decided that they weren't going to be in the airline business, that they were gonna double down on the railroad business, that they were gonna stay focused on what they were doing. And in doing so, they missed an enormous opportunity and their companies ended up in real trouble. Marketing guru from Harvard Business School, Ted Levitt, wrote in the 90s this, he said this, less than 75 years ago, the American railroads enjoyed a fierce loyalty among astute Wall Streeters. European monarchs invested in them heavily. Eternal wealth was thought to be the blessing for anybody who could scrape a few thousand dollars together to put into rail stocks. No other form of transportation could compete with the railroads in speed, flexibility, durability, and economy and growth potentials. Even after the advent of automobiles, trucks, and airplanes, the railroad tycoons remained self-confident. If you had told them 60 years ago that in 30 years they'd be flat on their backs, broke, and pleading for government subsidies, they would have thought you totally demented. 
Such a future was simply not considered possible. It was not even a discussable subject or an askable question or a matter which any sane person would consider worth speculating about. The very thought was insane. They considered themselves to be in the railroad business instead of in the people transportation business, and because of that, they missed their mission. And that doesn't just happen in business. It can happen in a church. Pastor and author John Ortberg, who was here this last weekend, tells the story of a time when he was on vacation up in Nantucket Island up in the Northeast. He was having this magnificent time exploring the magical coastline in the summer, and he stumbled across a little building and decided to wander into this historic building that's known as the Shipwreck and Life-Saving Museum. And you can still go into this museum and you can see the inside of the history of what it was like to live on this island and to explore this coastline. And what he discovered was that there actually is a society. It's called the Life-Saving Society, and it was birthed out of that time along the rocky coastline when you had these different lighthouses and it was incredibly dangerous for boats to be along the shore. And so what they did in this society, it was a voluntary society. They would stand guard at all matters of night and in all kinds of different conditions to make sure that if anything happened along the coastline, that somebody could sound the alarm and that people could go on a rescue operation to help. This little life-saving society that was there actually had a motto. They had a slogan. I want to show you the slogan. It says this, you have to go out, but you don't have to come back. How's that for a recruiting slogan that you, <laughs> we don't care if you die, but you got to go out in order to do this. You should put this on t-shirts and bumper stickers. But such was the power, the motivation of what they believed in their cause and what they were doing in their calling. And so the remarkable thing that John discovered while he was learning the history of the Life-Saving Society in the Life-Saving Museum is that the Life-Saving Society still exists, that they still have meetings, they still have gatherings, they still have events, they still have that great museum. They still have fundraisers. They still do education. But guess what? They're no longer in the life-saving business. That somewhere along the way, they stepped back from their calling and they said, you know what, let's let the professionals do it. Eventually, the Coast Guard was formed. And even though they still do all of that work, they don't engage in their mission. They don't go out anymore to rescue. Do you think that can happen to a congregation? That they still meet? They still gather? They still educate? that there's a museum-like quality to them, 
that they have this glorious history, they had this inspiring mission and vision, but they're not in the life-saving business anymore. Here's what I want you to hear from me today. What you need to hear is that unless we have that commitment to the elegant simplicity of the gospel, that God has given us a calling and a mission, we can end up like that little museum and that little society. And when we do that, we forget why we're here. There's an often told story of a guy in medieval England who's walking alongside a construction project, a job site, and a guy walks along and he sees somebody who's working at this job site. He's engaged in some masonry stone kind of work, and he says to the man, what are you doing? And he says, I'm making bricks. He takes a few steps further, walks a little around the corner there. He sees another guy who's doing the very same activity, engaged in the very same work, and he says, what are you doing? And he says, I'm building a wall. He takes a few steps further, goes around another part of the job site, and he sees another guy working, and he says, what are you doing? And he says, I'm building a cathedral, and it's going to be the most beautiful cathedral in all of Europe. Three guys doing the very same activity, doing the very same work, but only one of them has a mission. Only one of them has a calling. Let me let you in on a secret. I could care less whether Peachtree Church has a mission statement. But do you know what I care deeply about? Whether or not we have a mission. I really don't care for organizations that put mission statements on their materials or on their website or on the walls of their buildings. What really matters is whether or not there's a mission within us, a passion that drives us, a calling that wants us to send out our lives, even if our lives are at risk. There was a group of people in this congregation who spent a year on your behalf working on a variety of vision pieces. There's one little simple yet elegant phrase I want to introduce you to today. It's called a mission, a missional mandate. What are we collectively called to do? How are we called to do it? When are we successful? Where is God taking us? We all explored these questions, but this first question is why do we exist? And we believe that here at Peachtree, we're joining Christ daily in the restoration of all things. Let me see if I can break this down for you a little bit and then contextualize it. First, let's talk about what it means to join Christ. Let's talk about what it means to join an organization, to join a movement, to join a particular party or affiliation. We all know what it means to join different things And then it it even gets more personal than that. When we use the word join, we talk about joining a family. We talk about joining someone in a relationship. In fact, in the the Bible, when we talk about marriage, we discuss those whom God has joined together, let no one tear asunder. 
The Bible talks about us being the body of Christ and that we're individually parts of us, that we get to join with Christ. That invitation echoes over and over and over again. Yes, we're to follow Christ, but the invitation is more than just following. Jesus says, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. And so there's an element, it's not an equal partnership, but there's an element of partnership that Jesus has invited us into. And lest we think that this is all about our benefits, our privileges, our status, when the New Testament talks about joining Christ, one of the most frequent usages of that phrase is that we are joining Christ in his sufferings. In other words, joining Christ will involve sacrifice. But it's not just joining Christ, it's about joining Christ daily. All the way back in the Old Testament, a famous moment in the wilderness, God's people were given that daily provision of manna. Jesus picks up on this theme when he says, give us this day our daily bread in the Lord's prayer. And then he says, if anyone wants to become my disciple, he must deny himself and pick up his cross daily and follow me. Hear me in this. And American Christianity gets this so wrong. What it means to join Christ is not a one-time decision. It's a daily commitment. The Hebrew people would wake up in the morning and say the Shema, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. As soon as they woke up in the morning, they would say that before they would go to sleep. Have you joined Christ today? Joining Christ daily in the restoration. We believe that God is doing a restoration work in the world. Let me see if I can illustrate this for you. I wanna show you an image of a house up here on the screen and raise your hand if you'd like to live in this house. Not many takers of people that would be interested in this 1887 Victorian home that was declared by the city to be uninhabitable. And yet when someone decided that they had enough vision and enough resources, this is what that house became. This is what it looks on the inside. Raise your hand if you wanna live in this house now. <laughs> Restoring the original intent and beauty of what has now not become something dilapidated, but something amazing, restoration. We love the restoration shows that we see on TV where houses get restored, where cars get restored, where furniture gets restored, when lives get restored. There are all kinds of different programs where we can't wait to see the reveal of something that we knew that was bad, broken, dark, uninhabitable, and now has become beautiful again. Restoration. But you don't fully understand restoration just from the imagery of popular culture. We need to understand restoration philosophically. And so I'm going to use some big words with you for a moment about what restoration is not. Because many people look at the dilapidated parts of our lives today, and they have very different responses than restoration. One of the responses is nihilism. Everybody say nihilism. You can impress your friends by using this at a party coming up soon. 
Nihilism is the philosophy of meaninglessness, that life holds no intrinsic value to it and that you just kind of disengage and give up. Some people look at the brokenness and what's wrong in the world and they say, you know what, it doesn't really matter. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Nihilism. Other people look at a dilapidated world and they have a different response. They have the response of optimism. Everybody say optimism. This is putting on a bright smile even in the midst of a bad situation, that the world could be crumbling around you and, and you're like, no, it's going to be okay. It's not tethered in reality. It's, you, you, when, when someone does this, we, we know them to be Pollyannish, that they're, they're not looking at things in the right way. And so there's nihilism, which is kind of this meaninglessness or giving up. There's this optimism that has an over-rosy view of the way things that are and what the future could be. And then there's another group of people that choose the route of escapism. Everybody say escapism. This is where you choose to withdraw, to pull back, to carve out a different reality. You know that this is bad, but you want nothing to do with it. You want to keep it at arm's length, and there are even Christian versions of this one. It's known as the hatch, match, and dispatch version of the gospel, where a lot of preaching, particularly in American Christianity, is that God's going to come in and judge this world and destroy this world and tear this world apart, when in reality, if you read the New Testament, it says that God has created the world, and He's going to come back to redeem the world. And so we don't believe in an escapism. God's not going to get rid of your body. God's going to renew your body. God's not going to get rid of this creation that he's made. God's going to redeem this creation that he is made. And so we don't believe that the nihilistic approach or the optimistic approach or the escapist Houdini approach is the right response. We believe in the great restoration that God is doing in the world. And the question is, do you want to join him? Joining Christ daily in the restoration and then there's that last phrase, of all things. The Apostle Paul puts it this way. He says it like this. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Do you think Paul meant some things when he said this? No, all things, that Christ holds all things together, and he is coming to redeem all things. And so what this means for you and me is that there is not a single inch of creation, there's not a single part of any of our lives that is too far gone that Christ cannot redeem. And so when you look at the number of things that need to be redeemed in this world, things like marriages and homes and souls and hope, Friendships need to be redeemed. Trust needs to be restored. Callings need to be restored. Joy needs to be restored. Families and dignity need to be restored. Neighborhoods need to be restored. Cities need to be restored. Beauty needs to be restored. Justice needs to be restored. And in particular this week, I would add that schools need to be restored. And I would say that security needs to be restored. 
that sanity needs to be restored, that common sense needs to be restored. And that yes, peace, peace needs to be restored in our time. But we believe that God is doing these things in the world and we get to join him. That is the life-saving mission that he is calling us to. Behold, Jesus says, I am making all things new. Not, I used to make all things new in the good old days. Not, I'll make some things new when I get around to it. I am making all things new right now. This is our mission, our opportunity that he has invited us into. Why is it our mission? It goes all the way back to the beginning. That in 1909, October the 20th, that these two people, Ida and C.S. Honor, Charles and Ida were on their way home in a horse and carriage from burying their infant son, Lance. And in the midst of their grief, pulling through those early people who had gathered in the bustling city of 155,000 people living in the city of Atlanta that had expanded all the way up to this Buckhead area. In the midst of their grief, knowing that something needed to be done, that yes, they still had seven children at home between the ages of two and 13, and yes, they still had their magnificent mansion of a home in this area, that Honor Street just up here was the driveway for their house. But they saw the children playing in the street. And they knew that they weren't going to give up. They knew they weren't just going to put a bright smile on a face in the midst of their tragedy. And they knew that they were not going to retreat and hide from what needed to be done, but that they were going to start a Sunday school class for children. And they started that class, and it became the seeds of the Peachtree Presbyterian Church. This is what the intersection of Roswell and Peachtree looked like in 1909. It looks a little different today although it still has Coca-Cola kind of products in the picture. But because they were faithful to their mission, this, this is what they created. They weren't content with making bricks or building walls. They weren't going to stop until they made some cathedrals. 
This is our cathedral moment as a church. Are we still in the restoration business? Is God still doing this in the world today? And is he still inviting us to come alongside him? I don't think we need the heavy burdens of religiosity, nor do we need the forgetfulness of liberalism that says, you know what, it worked a while ago, but it doesn't work today. I think instead God's giving us a mission and we're to claim it in our moment in time. Is this the golden thread that works through this whole church that it doesn't matter whether you're changing a diaper in the nursery, ushering in the back, standing up here at the front, singing in the choir. It doesn't matter if you are talking with a friend of your neighborhood. What are you doing? We're we're joining Christ in the restoration of all things. This is our mission. And the question is, will we share it together? Let's pray. God, it is so easy for us to forget, to think that we're in the wrong kind of business. So easy for us to get confused And so, God, we pray that you will give your church here on Roswell Road an elegant simplicity of the gospel, the great permission within the great commission for our moment and our time. Thank you for the founding DNA of the faithfulness of a couple in the midst of their grief that didn't give up and didn't just put on a happy face and didn't run away. but heard the cry that you were doing something new. And so inspire us, God. Unite us together. Pull us together as your people to be able to live out this mission in our moment, in our time. And we pray all these things with great anticipation in the strong name of Jesus Christ and all of God's people said, amen.